Life Audio. Hey everyone, welcome back to How to Study the Bible. I'm joined again today by Rev. Rachel. Hey, Rach. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. How are y'all doing? Doing great. How is the Advent season kicking off for you? Oh, sweet mercy of the Lord. We are two <laughs> weeks away from finals. So we are adventing and kids are freaking out and it's okay. Oh, my it's goodness. Good. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like there's two little things I like to do right at the beginning of Advent. One is like to get the Christmas tree up and I like for it to smell Christmassy in my house. And those, those sound like silly kind of little things, but trying to orient my life to slow down and to mm-hmm. enter into the fullness of what it is to be in the Advent season is so countercultural <laughs> to because I just I feel like the world operates like it is such a 24-7 world like mm-hmm. you got to maximize every day every you know what I mean like every there's never like these rhythms and Advent does I think give us a rhythm to enter into sort of a discipline to enter into that rhythm so Hey guys, we're here because the Bible has changed so many lives. So just take a second and think about if you didn't have access to a Bible or you weren't even allowed to have one. This is a reality that many around the world are facing, which is why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language, and that's where you come in. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my new book, Not What I Signed Up For. Simply text STUDY to 71326 to help today. That's S-T-U-D-Y or visit give.crew.org slash study. Again, that's give.cru.org slash study. Message and data rates may apply and available to U.S. addresses only. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com. To join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. Yeah, and I think we're going to get into some of that actually in our passage today. But yeah. it it really is helpful to realize that we are on God's time and God's mm. pace. Oh my gosh, it's so different from from our world. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, it's been an amazing, the amazing highlight of the Old Testament. Right, we've been flying over flying so fast that there's a lot of things that we couldn't get into, but we have tried to hit kind of the main ones. And we're ending this series today, and we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. So we read Isaiah for you. Hey, do you want to give us a quick, just a quick overview of where we've been between Daniel and Isaiah? Like, where are God's people in when we enter into this passage? And then we're going to talk about, of course, kind of fast forwarding from here as well. Again, we've said this before, but it needs to be stated again on the record how absurd it is to pretend to do an Old Testament highlight reel in nine sessions in nine weeks. So please, for the love of all that is good, read, go and actually read the Old (laughs) Testament because we've missed a lot of important inks. 
And a lot has happened between and what's the passage that we read in Daniel and what's going on in Isaiah. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are not the warm, fuzzy verses that you get later in Isaiah. They're actually really hard to read because this is Isaiah's talking before the exiles happened with Daniel, at least in this in this stage. The timeline kind of plays around. Okay. But God's people have been corrupt and idolatrous and unjust since day one. We know this throughout the Old Testament. And God's warning them over and over and over that their rebellion is going to cost them. And that judgment eventually comes to pass. In Isaiah 39, takes the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon. And so that's where Daniel's story comes in, right? He's one in one of those waves of yeah. exile that goes off into Babylon. And so that's this deeply traumatic moment in Israel's history where they it looks like the promises of God have collapsed and they brought it upon themselves. Mm. But Isaiah pivots, right? In this chapter, in that traumatic moment where Jerusalem falls and the Jews are deported, he channels the same passion uh, the, that he brought to proclaiming God's justice and God's judgments into this message of hope that God is not done, that God is not done with his people. He's not going to abandon them. And so even though over and over the Jews have failed to obey the law, they failed to live into the community of justice and love that they promised to be back in Exodus. And God demonstrates and Isaiah demonstrates through God's word that the issue is they don't just need a national restoration. They don't just need to be brought back and get their country back. Mm. There needs to be a spiritual restoration. Like there needs to be a heart change to actually make any of this happen. And nothing short of a full heart transplant in his people is actually going to pull this off and break their bondage to sin. And so in the midst of some of the most beautiful passages in the, in the Bible on hope, Isaiah introduces this future character in God's redemptive story. And this is a very mysterious character that has basically confused the Jews for the next 700 years. Mm. And that's the passage that we're looking at now. Yeah. So, you know, I, I know that in prophecy, there are times where uh, there is a prophecy like we talked about in Daniel, where we actually hear a prophecy of world powers to come. And we see and have seen all of that play out. There's the kind of prophecy that is speaking about actual people. And sometimes it will talk about a person and then it will sort of shift into talking about the Messiah. We'll talk about Jesus. We look at it that way. When it comes to this passage here, is this one of those places where it was going to be shown in someone else and then become Jesus? Or do you think that this is just straight prophecy to a Messiah and the only Messiah who is Jesus? Man, great question. Obviously, there's some different scholarly interpretations of this, but I think at least if we're talking kind of observation of the passage, which right. I guess we're kind of shifting into, like the first question I have reading this is, who are we talking about? Because right. If you put yourself in the mindset of a person living in the 8th century before Jesus, this would be confusing to you, especially because in Isaiah 49, there are actually several chapters where Isaiah is talking about this suffering servant. And in the earlier chapters, he it sounds like he's talking about Israel as a people, as a nation. Okay. But you notice through the chapters that that actually there's kind of a plot twist. It shifts. And so in Isaiah 49... It says that now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him and mm. gather Israel to himself. So it looks like there are layers to this, mm -hmm. that, that maybe there's an aspect of, of Israel that is the suffering servant, but it's an incomplete, it's an incomplete fulfillment of that role. And there's clearly, there's another dimension to what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a pretty helpful way most of the time to handle Old Testament prophecy. There's usually a couple of layers to it. There's mm -hmm. usually kind of the more immediate context that's a partial fulfillment, but then you have to look ahead to what um, Jesus does in the New Testament to really kind of get the whole picture. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I just flipped back to Isaiah 49. And and those of you listening, if you're curious about this, if you've if you've gotten hung up on that idea before, super helpful to look back at 49, right? Because you you can tell it sort of talks about Israel, but then it says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And if you've been around the New Testament at all, you're like, oh, like that's Jesus. Like that's obviously has to be the story. It's not the story that the 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 nation of Israel will be the salvation to the ends of the earth, but that there has to be another character, right? So super helpful. I think one of the reasons why I even asked that question was because if I'm just observing the passage and getting into it, I'm immediately getting tripped up right at the beginning in verse 14. His his appearance was so disfigured mm-hmm. beyond that of any human being. And there's just like an emotional part of me that doesn't want that to be true, that doesn't want that to be real or to be either about Jesus or about Jesus's death. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's just so visceral. Like, it's just so I have to push through that to be like this. Is this really the way it has? Is this true? Is this really the way that it was and would be? You know, and there's not necessarily an answer to that. But I just want to share, honestly, that part when you read this, I don't think we want to relate to this Mm -hmm. kind of Jesus. I think we like the back half of the chapter, Jesus, Mm -hmm. you know, the one vindicated Jesus, the vindicated Jesus, the victorious Jesus, the raised Jesus. But this whole first part, I mean, really from verse 13, you know, all the way through, but the, you know, all the way through verse, at least five, you know, he was stricken, he was afflicted, he was punished by God, he was suffering, he was rejected. That does not sound like our hero our homeboy, our king, right? Like, because we like to follow power. (laughs) And like, Mm -hmm. and that's just, I I just named that because I think that's one of the things about this and really about Christianity in general that can be really confusing, especially to the Western mind that wants a powerful king and wants a victorious king. And it's not that Jesus isn't that, but there's obviously a process and a really important part of the story that we have to understand. And I think one of the most striking aspects of this chapter, even if you if you don't think ahead to the New Testament, if you just sit in Isaiah 53, is you see pretty clearly one of the most consistent themes in the Bible. And that's that our expectations of who God is and how God works are very often wrong. Mm -hmm. God so often does not behave the way that we want him to. And Mm -hmm. we're so often trying to get him to fit into our categories of we think how things are supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And Isaiah very much highlights that God chooses the the way of suffering and not the way of power, uh, which, of course, very much is fulfilled in Jesus and God's kingdom. But there's a certain uneasiness to that. And I think, too, just kind of reading it through, as we've just read it this morning, uh, as we're shifting into Advent, Mm. this is actually a really great passage, I think, to spend some time in. One, because it reminds us of why baby Jesus shows up in the first place. Mm -hmm. But more so, so Advent, right, it, it, it means coming, it means arrival, uh, but the whole point of Advent is that you are to enter into God's story of of and God's people's waiting. Mm. Like so much of the Bible and the experience of the people of God is is waiting. Abraham and Sarah waiting 25 years for the birth of Isaac. Mm. The Israelites waiting 400 years in Egypt to be delivered. The prophets waiting 800 years for Jesus and us waiting now for Jesus's return. And so to enter into that and to just sit with the people of God in the 8th century BC and not know how this is going to play out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in and the suffering and the confusion and to just be in that. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a pretty accurate way to kind of get inside what's happening. Yeah. I mean, you you think about kind of 
the verse that we read at the beginning of Advent from Isaiah 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Well, have you walked in darkness? Mm-hmm. It's not just fig- not just figuratively, but literally. Like, what does it feel like to walk in darkness? You're stumbling around. You don't know where you're going. It, it does not. You do not feel powerful. You feel kind of powerless, right? Like, you're just like, I can't even orient myself. I certainly don't have vision. And, you know, here we see in this same chapter, it talks about after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. And this idea that Jesus is a light to our world. You know, I think, Rachel, one of the things that we struggle with so much, or at least I know I do, is at the end of the day, we don't want pain. So (laughs) it's very hard to understand a God who would choose pain, allow pain, invite us into pain, because in, in a very binary, preschool level way, I just think we're like, surely the way can't be painful. Like, there can't be pain in the way. And I think that's a part of the thing about God that we can't fully understand, is that, you know, we're living in a part of a story where we can't see exactly how it turns out. We know we have the same, the same as the Israelites in the 8th century. They had a mysterious chapter of, about a mysterious figure that they didn't know who he would be. We have Jesus, but we still have mystery. We have a, mm-hmm. we still have a mystery about how it ends. None of us knows exactly how it works. We don't know exactly what heaven is like. We don't know when Jesus will return. We still have to live in some of that walking in darkness, but we get to do it and see a great light. Like if we walk into that, if we can believe, you know, sort of into that. Hey guys, we're here because the Bible has changed so many lives. So just take a second and think about if you didn't have access to a Bible or you weren't even allowed to have one. This is a reality that many around the world are facing, which is why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language, and that's where you come in. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my new book, Not What I Signed Up For. Simply text STUDY to 71326 to help today. That's S-T-U-D-Y or visit give.crew.org slash study. Again, that's give.cru.org slash study. Message and data rates may apply and available to U.S. addresses only. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. Yes, and amen to that. So do we want to kind of start looking towards the New Testament? Yeah. So what do you think? So, nor- so normally we say, okay, what's the backstory here? And you did, you actually gave us a great backstory of the context of this. But we actually want to do what's the forward story here? Because mm-hmm. now we know, okay, imagine getting this prophecy in that time, just like, who is this person? What is this going to be? And then we get to see how this thing gets a little bit wrapped, right? Because we mm-hmm. have this exact same chapter, the same 
sort of piece we can see in Acts chapter eight. So let's let's go forward to Acts chapter eight and just yeah. I love when the Old Testament is applied for us. Like we get to go to the New Testament and be like, oh, and that's that d- how you New Testament does the heavy lifting. Yeah. yeah. So like, oh, that's what you guys did with that. That's amazing. So we're in Acts chapter eight. And if you go, this is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. So it starts in, in verse 26. So let's just basically the story on the high level. I'll just share the story. And then Rach, you give sort of like, why does this matter to us? The interpretation. So we know that this is after Jesus has been resurrected. This is after the Holy Spirit's been received. We see the followers of Jesus sort of being scattered all around sort of the the ancient world. And we see the, the results of what's happening as people begin to talk about Jesus. And the Philip is given a very specific direction from the Holy Spirit to go a certain way. And he goes down a road and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. And this man is worshiping. He's, he's reading the Bible. <laughs> and Philip runs up next to his chariot because he's told to do so. And Philip just asks, do you understand what you're reading? And the passage of scripture that he is reading is actually the same part in Isaiah. And then we see Philip sort of explain to him how this connects to who Jesus is. And specifically, it says in verse 35, the good news of Jesus. This guy gets baptized on the spot and Philip's like removed from the story. So we get this like crazy moment, right? So this is the passage. So mm-hmm. so why is this? Like, tell us more, Rachel, about like why you think this is the passage and how this really illuminates for us what we're reading today. Well, a lot of the church fathers actually referred to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel because mm. it's That's they cool. felt it so clearly illuminated Jesus's life, death and, and, and resurrection just 800 years before Jesus actually shows up. Yeah. And so I think it's so important to understand who God is and how God works in that it is this passage that is what is used to bring this man to faith. It's mm-hmm. Isaiah's promise of this suffering servant that is what calls him into God's kingdom. And one of the things we see in the Old and the New Testament really consistently is the only way you know Jesus is in his suffering. You do not encounter the crucified Jesus. You do not encounter him at all. Mm. And it's in his suffering that we experience the fullness of his resurrection life. And also, as we've just seen the, and talked about over and over, the consistency of God, mm. right, from the Old to the New Testament, that Jesus understood himself, the early church understood who Jesus was and what he did through the lens of what God had done in his people throughout the Old Testament, building us up and preparing us mm. for this moment of saying, oh, my goodness, Jesus is the one who fully fulfills this promise of Isaiah 53 mm. um, in really, really beautiful ways. And it is worth doing, by the way, a really fun, worthwhile rabbit trail would be going to Isaiah 53 and in your study Bible, follow every single reference mm-hmm. verse by verse, and you will encounter an exorbitant amount of New Testament verses mm. that d- either directly allude to or directly quote Isaiah 53 in, in this, particularly, of course, and Jesus' crucifixion. Mm. And so I think, one, just in terms of the foundation for how we understand Jesus and what it means to be a part of his kingdom, but also there's a direct application for how we actually experience life that that Peter expounds upon, if you want to mm. shift into that. But that's just kind of a quick overview of what's happening in, in Acts 8. Oh, so good. So if we, if we kind of answer the question, what does this mean? I love what you said. Like, if you don't know the crucified Jesus, you don't know Jesus. And that's an invitation right into, even if it does feel uncomfortable, to understand his suffering and to understand the meaning of his suffering. And then, therefore, what does that mean for us, right? So take us to Second Peter, and then we'll wrap with a couple of application questions. Yeah. So so Peter is speaking to churches who are suffering. And a big mm. part of what he's trying to address with them is, what is it? How does Jesus enter into your suffering and redeem it? 
Mm. And how is that a part of your experience? And how is that a part of life with God? And I'm just going to read some of his a few verses from First Peter chapter two, because here's what he says. If you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he quotes Isaiah repeatedly in these next few verses as he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. That's an Isaiah quote. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, mm. but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Mm. So clearly the redemption that Jesus brings in suffering is not only for eternity, but right now it actually enlivens our experience of suffering, which God uses mm-hmm. in, in powerful and redemptive ways. And, mm-hmm. and as I was kind of reflecting on this aspect of the question of what does this mean for us, just before we met to record this, I was meeting with a student and I asked her what, because, mm-hmm. you know, I was just brainstorming with her about this passage. And I mentioned that we were looking at Isaiah 53 and her response was, oh, man, I love that chapter Mm. because it was so formative for me in high school. And so this student had a really, really challenging high school experience. Her family fractured and she suffered chronic illness for for multiple years. And she said that she would read that passage over and over again, Isaiah 53, Mm. because there was something so comforting about Jesus bearing her suffering infirmity, yet also at the same time, she's still suffering and Jesus is with her in that. Mm. And that in some inexpressible way that brought real healing to her soul. Mm. Mm. And I think in terms of trying to, you know, kind of get into the application, as we say, of this passage is more something that it's, I think, less of an active response like the scripture normally invites us to and more of an experience of this is something that's happened to you that God is doing in you, that he meets you in those places. And anyway, that what this kid had to say, I thought was really profound. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that. You know, when I think about listening to you share that story, what comes to mind is, again, what we celebrate in Advent is the idea of God as Emmanuel, Mm. God with you. So the idea that because of Jesus's suffering, we never suffer alone. And I think my application or sort of like place I want to land for all of us today is really around that question that you asked, Rachel. But maybe I want to ask two questions, given the circumstances of your life, wherever you find yourself today, maybe you ask your soul these two questions. Do I know the suffering servant Mm. and do I know the victorious king? Mm. Because there are times in life where we must and absolutely should engage with the comfort and the reality and the idea that our life will have suffering and that we don't suffer alone. And then there are places where many of us want to stay in our suffering or we want to stay in the pain and we we sort of allow that to be a, a place that we become almost complacent. And I think we have to ask the question, do I know a victorious king? Because Mm. we do get to have both in Christ. And there are times where I think, yes, we need to be able to say, this life is not a metocracy where if I do all the right things and I'm a good person, then my life is going to go well. And that is the way it's going to be. That's the American dream. That's not the spiritual dream. And then there are also times where I think we think it's all it's all dark, it's all dingy, it's all horrible. I don't nothing I do really matters. I don't really need to live with joy and the world's going to hell in a handbasket and that's the way I'm going to live. And I do sort of want to challenge that perspective yeah. too but to say like we do have a victorious king. We're like, resurrection people. Yeah, we're resurrection people and the spirit of advent is joy. So in the midst of all that's going to come true in Isaiah 53, 
we are also given this this heralding that this is joy, like mm. joy is coming and we get to experience that as well. So we hope that gives you guys a couple of things to think about as you go into your Advent season. We'll be around here with a couple of repeat podcasts as well as a couple of sermons. So you guys keep listening and we love having you next year, which is coming right up. We're going to do a New mm-hmm. Testament highlight reel. So we're excited about that too. All Thanks, right, Rachel, for good. all you brought to us today. Love being here. Have a blessed Advent to you and everybody else. Oh, yeah. Merry Christmas, everybody. How to Study the Bible with Nicole Eunice is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you like what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review the podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.